I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I'm sure that some of you may have heard about a letter that the FBI director uh, sent out yesterday. Well, if you're like me, you probably have a few questions about it. Stay on point, Donald. Stay on point. No sidetracks, Donald. Nice and easy. Nice. I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. I want to be the president for everybody. Everybody who agrees with me, people who don't agree with me, people who vote for me, people who don't vote for me. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans. And this is so important to me. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. It's 3.30 a.m. in the newsroom, and we're in a state of shock. This was not supposed to happen. The biggest political upset of the past 50 years. Donald Trump, against what we thought were all odds, collected swing state after swing state after swing state. Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina, ending with 276 electoral votes tonight and soundly defeating Hillary Clinton. She has conceded the race. It's over. There's no suspense. There won't be any recounts. Donald Trump won. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard-fought campaign. I mean, she... She fought very hard. Hillary has worked very long and very hard over a long period of time, and we owe her a major debt of gratitude for her service to our country. I mean that very sincerely. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division. have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. It's time. How did Trump pull off such a stunning victory? How did nearly no one, not the pollsters, not the pundits, not the journalists, see this coming? And we're including ourselves here. We started to answer those questions this morning around 2 a.m. when Trump's victory was at hand, but the race had not yet been called. I went into the studio with three of my exhausted but generous colleagues. You know them by now. Nick Confessori, Maggie Haberman, and Jim Rutenberg. I want to ask what just happened here. Uh, I'll take that because it's a quick answer. I mean, we don't know what happened because the tools that we would normally use to help us assess what happened... 
uh, failed. Uh, the polling on both sides was wrong. I, you know, one of the things that uh, you're going to hear, I suspect, in the coming hours from Trump and his uh, advisors is, we knew it, we told you so, we called this. That is not true. They thought they were going to lose. They thought they were going to lose over the weekend. They thought they were going to lose last week, and they thought they were going to lose even uh, early in the evening on Election Day. Um, it changed dramatically when the real results started coming in. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you had a uh, an electorate that I think a lot of us failed to completely understand in terms of uh, who Trump's supporters were. A lot of the supporters who should have been behind Clinton did not turn out. A lot of younger voters, a lot of black voters, especially younger black voters. And fundamentally, uh, Clinton is a, as it turns out, was the worst candidate Democrats could have run, which is kind of ironic since the, the field was cleared for her right um, back in, in 2013. I mean, Democrats were really discouraged from primarying her. No known major quantity did. Ultimately, Bernie Sanders was the one who did, and he almost beat her in Iowa. I would say this is a, a failure of expertise on the order of the fall of the Soviet Union or the Vietnam War. So wow. thoroughly have we wow. been failed by people who believe that they thought they knew that what they were talking about, including reporters, but also pollsters and other kinds of experts. Um, I, I think what we are seeing is a is in part a revolt of the country that people had written off as the country of the past against the country that most people thought they were living in, a country of the future, of a multicultural future, of a globalized world. This was a revolt of people who did not feel vested in that future America and stood up and wanted their votes counted. And I would say um, what's really striking me right now is we miss stories here or there. But this was like a huge, this was our, the country, right? We missed to, to the, the, and I'm media focused because I'm the media columnist, but it's our job to tell the story of the country. And we don't, then, then I think the press in general doesn't understand its country and you would hear it. How can they still support him when we're fact checking and we're showing that these are lies and these are untruths and he, you know, or this objectionable behavior took place and, and it did, but what we now know is that a huge part of the country is far more upset about the ills that he was pointing to and promising to fix than any of the flaws we were pointing out about him as a candidate. And there's going to be a lot of talk. It's already starting. We need to understand flyover country. But flyover country is not a place. It's a state of mind. <laughs> I mean, it's in Long Island. It's We'll see these volcanoes. You're seeing the red. So I don't know. And lastly, I would say so many times, we're going to learn our lesson. We're going to learn our lesson. But the Tea Party happened. Press basically missed kind of the impact. 2014 wave, Eric Cantor goes down. We missed the impact. And we missed him in the beginning. So I don't know. There's got to be a lot. A lot's got to change. And I think it we misserved the public. Can I just add to what Jim is saying? I think that the way in which we misserved the public was... As Jim said, we pointed out Trump's characteristics that would normally be disqualifying in a presidential race, uh, which were all of the words he has said, which are the where you're talking about um, the race has not been called yet, but he's a handful of electoral votes away from being the president elect. So you would be looking at a president elect who's facing trial uh, in a month in a fraud case on Trump University, a case that Michael covered 
extensively, there are a number of lawsuits pending against him. We have never seen something like this before. The public knew all of this, and they didn't care. They knew all of that, and they liked the rest. And again, the one thing that I think that the media missed tremendously is that he was so branded as this sort of genius businessman from The Apprentice, which is very different than how we knew him in New York, those of us who have covered him for years and years and years and years. Jim, you mentioned the kind of self-flagellation that we're all due for. I want to ask you guys how it is that the polling was so horrifically off. We need to dig through the data, but um, I think the compulsion to tell you what's going to happen based on polls that, first of all, are about what's happened when the caller, hopefully it was a phone call, talked to the person he or she is serving and projecting out what that means in the future. It's about that day and that moment and that phone call. So I think that the crunching got brought people way over their skis, and it's been good in the past, but it was really Do you think that these models, let's just go there, the ones that tell you the percentage chances of but, 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 like, are they rubbish? Should we not be doing them anymore? I'll say this, and hopefully one of you disagrees in a way, because there is another side to this argument, right? My side of the argument is when you see the, let's say, 93%, a data expert will say, yeah, but there's 7%, and people understand that. I don't, I think 93% burns into your consciousness, right? It, it just does. So maybe if you're a data genius, it doesn't, but for the average person, it, it does. So in my view, that's bad. There's an argument against that, uh, you know, which I've, you know, heard a lot this year. And maybe there's something I'm missing, and, and I'm open to continuing to talk about it. Um, I also, this is this is a theory, and it's not based in data, but, you know, we've often talked about, like, who is poorly served by polling? Is it millennials uh, without landlines? Is it poor people who move around a lot? Um, but my own theory right now, and it's only a theory again, is that people who think that the elites are biased against them, that the mainstream media is a conspiracy, that the world is tilted against them. Uh, are those people who are going to answer a phone call and talk with a pollster and talk honestly about how they feel? And maybe we'll find out that there is another gap in the polling uh, that is some of the people who who voted for Trump. And maybe in the coming days we'll find out whether it was a gap in the access that pollsters had to them or a gap in what they were willing to tell pollsters about their political views? It feels like the only way to really understand what happened in the last 24 hours is that certain demographic groups dramatically changed how they vote. I want to talk about which groups did that and how their behavior changed. So there are a couple of things. Um, black voters did not turn out in the numbers uh, that they had been expected to in a lot of places. I mean, North Carolina, it was known that turnout was down. I believe that that was a, a bigger gap than anticipated. Certainly true in Detroit as well. And to be clear, some of that was predicted by union officials watching these tallies who were privately saying, you know, there, there are some uh, markers in Michigan and Wisconsin that are making us nervous, saying they said this 24 hours before. Uh, election day. So black voters did not turn out in great numbers. And there was always a, a question of a generational divide for Clinton with older black voters for, who remember the Clinton era and then younger black voters. And we actually wrote about this last year when she was confronted by a Black Lives Matter protester. It was just a huge uh, crystallization uh, of that gap. That um, that protester, like the Clintons meant nothing. Nothing. No. And, 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 and to she, that protester. And she clearly felt a level of sort of 
don't you get what I've done and who I am? And the answer was no. Um, younger voters did not turn out in the numbers that she needed them. These are the reliable Democratic constituencies. And Hispanic voters, you know, the, the numbers were up, but it just wasn't sort of a one-to-one ratio that was going to make up for the difference. We're also seeing a really fascinating geographic shift in this electoral map. Uh, we're seeing white voters across the North, pretty much the last white voters uh, who are not college educated who were voting for Democrats, pretty much voted for Trump this time. Um, all across the industrial Midwest and all those states where factory jobs have dried up. But even in, in the Northeast, places where um, segregation is pretty high, we just see that like those people came out and turned out for Trump some of them voted for Barack Obama in 2008. In fact, I think we're going to discover tomorrow that a fairly surprisingly large number of them voted for Barack Obama in 2008. It is not a purely kind of race-driven politics, although I do believe there are strands of that in this. That would explain something we were puzzling over tonight, which was that Obama's approval ratings are really high right now, yet Trump, right? He's really Obama's really a... A singular figure is, I think, what we are discovering over and over again. Truly. I mean, there's, there's, there is not a secret sauce that he can transfer to somebody else. But also ponder what Trump and, and Obama have in common, which I know is a phrase to choke on for a lot of our listeners. But these are both men who came in and said they were kind of above the usual plane of politics, that they were on your side, that they would shake things up, that they were distant from the political establishment and would challenge it. And in fact, who did Barack Obama win the nomination against? Yes. It was Hillary Clinton. And I think there is something there that we have to consider about how people who are not highly educated or have clearly articulated worldviews or sets of issues about politics think about elections. And it's not the way that we do. Nick, I feel like you've written about this. The future of the American like electoral project is supposed to be in the hands of non-white voters. So riddle me this. The president-elect, almost, Donald Trump, offended almost all non-white voters in the country. And yet those non-white voters were basically like superseded by a coalition of white voters who elected this next president, we think. How, how, did the hell, how the hell did that happen? For the simple reason that there are still more of them uh, and minorities are still a minority. That's why we use that word. Uh, you know, Nate Cohn said today in our live chat that uh, less educated white voters are still 40 percent of the electorate. Think about that. When that 40 percent decides to vote as one, as African-Americans do for Democrats, that is a powerful force that is almost insurmountable uh, in a lot of places in the country towards a candidate. And that seems to be what happened tonight. But I don't think that it's race-driven, honestly, in, in that respect, to, to go back to something you said earlier, because I think that had uh, almost any other major Democratic candidate been the nominee, they would have beaten Trump. I think Bernie Sanders would have beaten Trump because he would have gotten a lot of these union households uh, that, that Clinton did not. I think that Elizabeth Warren likely would have had the same uh, impact. And uh, I, I think that we, we can't... Um, overstate the degree to which this was, uh, to your point, Nick, about a repudiation of Clinton, that is what this was. I mean, she is a, she is a, it's very hard to use the Obama demographics and persuasion model of appealing to voters when you have been on the political scene for 25 years. She, she's defined. I don't know who you're persuading to vote for her. People have made up their minds about her. 
But one last thing I would say to bring it back to why the bad projections matter is did that depressed turnout when it looks like such a shoe in it's logic and his and our, all of our experiences tell us that that can depress turnout. I, I think these phenomena are stronger that you guys are talking about, but that still has to be in the mix. And when we come back to that discussion, that has to be top of mind. You know, I think there will obviously be uh, for a lot of people, there will be a discussion about how the media treated Hillary Clinton and how Trump voters treated Hillary Clinton. So we should broach that right here. There's going to be a broached. Uh, it's approached. <laughs> you know, people are going to say, well, we wrote too much about the emails and that's why she lost. Did we? Um, I don't think so. But there may have been times when we overplayed the emails on some days. Uh, Michael, we had talked about this on, on some days. It seemed like they could dominate the yeah, news. These are the leaked uh, on or the stolen other hand, look, emails. I, uh, you know, I once covered uh, a state Senate leader who was being investigated by the FBI for four or five years. He went on trial um, and his conviction was... He went on trial and his conviction was vacated. Now, would you tell me that, like, all that journalism, the reporting on him was a waste of time or was a poor use of our resources? I don't think so. Um, but people will obviously make that argument about Hillary Clinton. I want to go back to Obama for just a second. He was our first black president. And it feels like the election of Donald Trump is some sort of a reaction to it. And I wonder if you have a President-elect Trump, if that's what continues to happen if tomorrow, without a president-elect and President Obama. I just think it's impossible to to look at Trump uh, and not see that he captured the votes of people who thought of, of Obama as an alien, as other, as something un-American. And some of those people are racist. And, and, and uh, it's, just, it's just a fact. We could see it in social media. We could see it at rallies. We could see it from Trump himself in the way that he pursued this birtherism lie uh, for years on end. So there is a component of Trumpism that should be troubling to any person um, who thinks of themselves as living in a, in a country where people can get along with their differences. But I, I don't think that we can say that that's the whole picture here by any means. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with Nick, and I, I think that— um, there's one element of, of Trumpism that I, I think we haven't touched on that much in the paper and, and certainly not tonight. Trump is, in a lot of ways, uh, sort of an extension of a, of a European-style nationalism that we are seeing on the rise. And there is a, there is a familiarity there. Um, you know, it's the, it's the sentiment that, you know, he, ta he, would, he, he talked about, and I'm sure we will hear again in the coming days, assuming that he does become president-elect, uh, Trump, he he kept saying, they'll call me, you know, Mr. Brexit. It'll be Brexit plus, plus, plus. And it was hilarious. But but actually, he's not wrong that what happened with Brexit is it was a it was a, a vote that involved, you know, 90 percent of white voters. It was a very small percentage of minority voters. This was to Nick's point about white voters essentially voting in a block. That is what happened. And when that happens, there's a very specific outcome. But we're not immune in this country to global trends. And that's what we're seeing. And uh, I just want to make a note about race, because I think at times when the Tea Party movement was new, sometimes race got conflated with, um, you know, legitimate gripes by Tea Party activists. Same thing kind of holds now. But I do think that the discussion about race during this campaign has been direct and open in the news media in a way that we hadn't previously been comfortable with. And that has to continue. And there's going to be pressure to bottle it up. And you guys missed the story. And for 
all the bit of the story that we did miss, the race questions that came up during this campaign need to continue to be aired out. I want to know if Elizabeth Warren would have been the first female president if she'd run. I want to know which Democrat would have been elected president tonight if they had not heeded the explicit and the implicit warnings from the Democratic establishment to stay out of this race. It it sounds harsh to say to you know about Clinton, um, but I think almost any other Democrat that was up pretty high in the list could have had a better chance. Certainly a Joe Biden, possibly an Elizabeth Warren. I've I've always thought that Warren seemed to have like unlocked the magical long sought connection between liberal economic populism and white working class voters. There's there's always some evidence that she had maybe figured out how to do it to some degree that would be important for the party. It's not clear. It could have happened. You can see Joe Biden going against Donald Trump um, and for reasons that are edifying and not, including the fact that Joe Biden is a man uh, and has a working class blue collar style of his own. Um, I can see him basically shutting down um, a lot of Trump's appeal with people who are voting for Democrats in past elections and voted for Trump this time. But, you know, it's a guess. We can't really know. And it could be, as Maggie says, that we're just seeing the natural rise of European-style populism in this country as it's risen in other uh, kind of diversifying Western countries that are straining under the shift from a majority white or majority European country to a more diverse country. We're seeing it in Germany and in Britain and elsewhere. Maggie, I want to know... If Donald Trump woke up this morning and sounded at all like Anthony Scaramucci, who was his economic advisor and was in the Times building, and four hours ago looked at me and said, we will lose tonight, which is a staggering fact, this Donald Trump tonight, does he, does he process he's president? Did he ever want to be president? Is he ready to be president? There's so many answers to those so many questions. Um, he uh, and your anecdote about Anthony Scaramucci remains uh, shocking to me, even hours later. Um, Donald Trump woke up this morning sounding uncertain because when he is faced with uncertainty, he often sounds that way and he hedges it. And he does a, you know, if if I don't win, I'll I'll go take a vacation. And this was a big waste of time and so forth and so on. Uh, I had several conversations with people. Um, Just pause for a minute. What do we need to talk about? Washington Post broke in with, uh, they declared for Trump. Okay. Anyway. Why don't we just keep going? Yeah, yeah. Maggie. Uh, I had several conversations with people. um, NAP. Why don't we we just tell listeners what the news is, which is we're in the studio. It is 2.34, and the news media is beginning to report without hedging that Donald Trump is the president-elect of the United States of America. And I want you, Maggie, who've spent the last 16 months reporting about him, to react to that. Well, Michael, my reaction is I'm, I'm reading an AP news alert, uh, you know, real Donald Trump, you know, at real Donald Trump, his Twitter handle, elected president of the United States. And I'm uh, having tweeted at me uh, a, a really ill-advised moment uh, on television last year where I chuckled at that prospect back in July. So shame on me among the media who did not see this for a while. Um, uh, Trump himself did not expect to stay in this race as long as he did, and I know that he will say otherwise. But uh, two people close to him had said since last year that there had always been some plan of him getting out 
in October. You know, he was going to just, after 2011, when he played with running and didn't run, he, he had to run to be taken seriously. And that he would, you know, he would have declared, he would have gotten the attention he wanted, and then he would do a mic drop and walk off the stage. He is, I think, not totally processed what this means. I had conversations with people close to him last August who said, um, when I would ask them, does he want to be president or does he actually just want to win, they would pause and say, that's a very good question. To be fair to him, I think that most people don't totally process what it means to be the president of the United States. But unlike Hillary Clinton, who has been thinking about it for a very, very long time, I think Donald Trump is coming into this with something of a Robert Redford at the end of the candidate. What do we do now? Now that Trump, who's probably in his apartment and it's dawning on him that he's the next president of the United States, do you think he's mentally prepared for it? What do you think, Nick? I just want to say the words President Trump, President Trump, President-elect President Trump. Trump but soon to be President Trump. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure if he's mentally prepared. I think by any conventional measure that we use in politics, he's not prepared, period. But then in a sense, you know, there isn't anyone who's ever been prepared to become president. It's in many ways the hardest job in the world. But did this guy want to be president? It's one of the great kind of unknowns, Jim. That's an unknown. But you know what is, to me, even what's more important is not only does he want to be president, but does he want to go through with some of the policy, with all the policies that he ran on? The wall, I've no doubt, right? Um, the Muslim ban. The Muslim ban or whatever version of it he's kind of landed on now. Um, what's it like to be an immigrant family here that with, you know, extended family members who now are, have to be really scared? Um What's it mean for press freedom? Does he try to enact some legislation to make it easier to sue journalists? Does he eradicate a press room in the White House? You know, these are all things he said he was going to do. So not only does he want to be president, but what kind of president does he want to be? And I think he's kind of bound to be the one he said he was going to be for his supporters. Maggie, are we actually facing a Trump presidency or is this some Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich, old hands who really know what it's like to run government presidency. I don't think we know what a Trump presidency will look like. Trump historically has surrounded himself with people who were deeply sycophantic, who were not great at pushing back on him. He and Clinton actually have very similar qualities in this way. His are just very much at the surface. Um, and he has, you know, she is a she is a lifelong public servant and and he is not. And so she has sort of a respect for what comes with that. Um, you know, where she had Sid Blumenthal sort of whispering in her, in her ear, but off to the side, he has Steve Bannon, the head of Breitbart, just literally running the show. The head of his transition, Chris Christie, just spent the last couple of weeks with his two top aides being convicted in the Bridgegate scandal. Rudy Giuliani, who has been out of government for a very long time, clearly, uh, anticipates getting some kind of a job. There is uh, General Mike Flynn, who is very pro-Russia, who has been incredibly close to Trump. And so the list goes on. But, you know, we were talking earlier tonight about what even staffing a Trump White House will look like. You know, Chief of Staff Corey Lewandowski. Um, I heard Hannity you know, wanted that, but that was a long time ago. I read ago. that somewhere. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. That I, that I think might not be happening. I also think the Fox perch might become more secure for him. But no, in all seriousness, I don't think we know what a Trump presidency will look like, and I don't think we know what the media reactions to a Trump presidency will look like. I mean, the, the New York Post, my alma mater, did not endorse in this presidential election. Mine too. 
And that's right. And Jim Smelman Matter also. Um, the Journal does not, the Wall Street Journal, also owned by Murdoch, does not endorse in presidential races, but the Post does. And the fact that they didn't endorse told me where either Murdoch wanted this race to be or where he assumed it would be. Murdoch is is not a nationalist. Murdoch is pro-immigration reform. I don't know what this is going to look like. I want to end with a very simple question, a very simple question about how this news is making all of us feel. And I'll start. This has been a totally unprocessed piece of news in my night. I wrote the story of Trump's victory with my colleague Matt Flegenheimer for the past six hours in a room with the door closed. And I still feel like it's not real, even though I wrote a 1,500-word story saying it was real or about to be real. And I kind of wonder when it's going to sink in. That's maybe how deep the shock is that that I can't even process it. I guess um, this is going to sound crass, and I really don't mean it to. Uh, as a story, it's unbelievable. And there's so much that we have to learn and report. And excited isn't the right word at all. But it's a huge story. It's the hugest story we'll ever cover in politics and maybe bigger than politics. So there's that. I think the things that I do have an issue with, first of all, from my perch here, is the press freedom threats trouble me. They just do. And the ugliness that he sometimes forwarded in his campaigning style troubles me too. And that's, you know, to be something to cover. Yeah. But it's something we all live. We all agree. This was a really ugly campaign and he behaved in ways we hadn't seen. And, and I hope those ways don't translate to government. Maybe that's his prose. I can't even begin to put it into words. I mean, I, I'm, I'm putting this into different buckets, but there's uns unsure about what this means either for the country and for how the rest of the world will receive a President Trump. There is concern, as we have discussed, about the various systems that should have predicted what was coming, not working, ours included. And there is just sort of utter shock. I have covered this man in some form or another for 20 years, and I've covered Hillary Clinton in some form or another for 20 years, and uh, that this race ended up this way and the way it did is um, uh, not surprising, given everything I know about Clinton and how people are really hardened against her or really hardened for her, but there's no middle ground. Um, but Donald Trump did everything, sh you know, sort of short of cutting off his own ear to try to hurt himself over and over again and dare voters to reject him. And they just wouldn't do it. I feel that my head and my heart are in two different places. I've been writing for six or seven months about the parts of the country that really favored Trump and the voters who favored Trump and why. But I think I often wrote it with a sense of sort of loss or eulogy, uh, that they were angry, but part of the reason they were angry is that they felt that they were losing. And all the data in, in my head, all the things that I saw that we all saw, all the polling, uh, suggested that uh, the Clinton team would wrap it up, that they knew what they were doing, that it would be a technical victory over the hearts and anger of Trump supporters. And so to have that disjuncture, that like separation at work is really dislocating. I want to thank you all, Jim, Nick, Maggie. It's uh, 2.44 and the New York Times has weighed in and declared Donald Trump to be president-elect and the winner over Hillary Clinton in this presidential campaign. Thank you guys again. Thanks. Thank Thanks, Michael.
Clearly, we've just begun to scratch the surface of what happened tonight. There are so many unanswered questions still about how it is that Hillary Clinton lost this decisively and what a Donald Trump presidency would even look like. But we need to process and we need to sleep. So I'm going to go home and then I'll be back later today to keep talking. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here sometime tomorrow. I want to thank the bleary-eyed people who made this show possible this morning. Lisa Tobin, Vanessa Romo, Pedro Rosado, and Diantha Parker. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.